A content warning. This series deals with dark themes including child and domestic abuse, sexual assault, and content that is inappropriate for children. Please be advised. I want to know right now my family is there. No, they're not here. And they called the farm and told us that the police were there looking for me, and we left in five minutes. What do you want us to do about it? And I said, your job. You're not law enforcement, Jerry. Yes. We're the church. Hi, everyone. It's Tim here. Today, we're going to the United States, where there's a new story unfolding. You know what? Uh, at this point, I don't care. Use my name. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. You know, at this point, I just need to take a, a strong stand and, you know, you know, because it's not just my family. There's other families that this has happened to. Anthony is 55 years old and a married father of six. He's out of the tribes now, but he is unfortunately still very much a part of their orbit. Anthony joined in 2013 on a particularly inauspicious day. Well, I came in uh, uh, April 1st, April Fool's Day. He joined the tribe of Manasseh, a huge area which encompasses Missouri, Kansas and Colorado, all the way up to the Rocky Mountains on the Canadian border. The tribes regard Manasseh as a kind of heartland community, where, as they put it, Members are learning to forget the past, past hurts, past offences, past troubles, and press on towards the goal. Anthony and his wife and kids were put to work. His wife worked in the deli, and he and the kids had a number of jobs, including on a construction crew. But soon, things started to go wrong. There was a botched home circumcision on one of his sons, and one night his two-year-old daughter fell out of one of the homemade bunk beds. Anthony ran in and found her on the floor, howling in pain. I'm saying, hey, we need to get my daughter to the hospital. We don't know what's going on. I don't know if she has a broken neck. I don't know if she has, you know, internal bleeding. She's in a lot of pain. There's swelling going on. And she won't even let us touch her neck. And he just grabs me and he's like, you can't do that. cannot do that. If you do that, you're going to put your family in jeopardy, your children. Another time, two of his young sons were riding in a hay wagon when they were caught against a fence and crushed. The boy's legs looked as if they'd been mauled by sharks. When Anthony begged to take his kids to the hospital, an elder told him he was overreacting. And he goes, you listen to me. It doesn't matter. If they lose their legs, that's God's will. You need to get a hold of yourself. One of the communities they were living in operated an organic sprouts business called Chlorophylls in Loris, Kansas. The tribes had just been exposed in a TV program on CBS for using kids to work in their factory in Cambridge, New York, and were afraid of a similar thing happening at the sprouts factory in Kansas. They were also concerned about any surprise visits by workplace and food safety regulators, and so they set up a hidden doorbell. If a disciple comes, there's a doorbell, and you had to reach down 
And that doorbell, when you rang, it was four rings. And they would joke that that sounded like, I'm a disciple. And so they knew if someone rang that, that it was a disciple. There was another doorbell to the right, right by the handle of the door. And that would go, and when they heard that, they would joke and say, well, that sounds like Gentile. It wasn't a 12 driver. It would be a delivery person or the health department or somebody that, that they didn't know. In 2017, Anthony's daughter came to work at the Sprouts factory. So she was about nine and a half at that time. And that day we were mostly doing packaging. But towards the end of the day, I was set to go wash seeds. Because if you get seeds, um, they can possibly carry bacteria in the, in the holes. So you wash them with a solution that's it's kind of like a bleach solution. At some point, somebody had grabbed my daughter and had sent her to go work in this iodine solution. Suddenly, there was a god-awful wailing from his daughter. Rather than taking care of her, though, the woman in charge was trying to shut her up. And I heard her say, you stop that right now. You stop it. You're just faking it. You're just trying to get attention. The girl was complaining that her arms itched, her throat was numb and swollen, and that her eyes were burning. It turned out that the water had been mixed with a dangerously high concentration of iodine. Anthony and his daughter spent the next few hours vomiting and delirious. Fed up, Anthony decided to leave in 2018. But being apart from his kids was harder than he could ever have imagined. So really, I was kind of in this place of not really knowing what to do. And even though I believed I was right, still having like all that doctrine floating around in my head and kind of second guessing myself and going, what if they're right and I'm wrong? Eight months later then, he returned. He told the elders he wanted to come back and repent. In reality, he just wanted to be with his family. He was even re-baptised, promising to be faithful to Yahshua. But by 2022, he couldn't put up and shut up any longer. He began seeing clearer than ever all the emotional manipulation, the punitive rules and the inequality between members. He didn't recognise God in any of it. I started speaking more and more what was really going on in my heart, that I was sick of all the control, and uh, it just opened up a bee's nest. You know, in the end, I was considered a divisive person. Literally, the, the last week, it seemed like they were trying to push me out the door. In the end, it came down to a digital camera given to his children. A few weeks prior, my wife had brought up to me about this camera that she didn't like the fact that they were looking at this camera, that they would look at it and play with it and laugh at the pictures and laugh at the people in the pictures. And I made a comment. I said to her, why do you mind? Why does it matter that our children are looking at this camera? Can't they have some kind of fun at all? Can't they just be children? And she looked at me kind of astonished. They're not here to play. 
They're here to be disciples. I said, well, it's so funny because all the other children around here, their families have cameras. And the shepherd's children have cameras. His wife then reported back to the shepherds, and Anthony was hauled into a meeting. This meeting literally felt like a barrage, uh, like they were just beating me up through the whole thing. And Hushai is a pretty big, tall man, and he kind of stands up and hovers over me, and he says, do you really think that that's okay, that, that your children have a camera? And I looked at him square in the eyes, and I said, yes, I do. I think it's fine. I think children should be able, be able to be children. That was in April 2022. I didn't choose to leave on my own. They, they sent me away. He's only seen his kids once since then, when he visited the community around New Year's Eve. Each and every one of them, down from the smallest to the biggest, were very apprehensive at first, very like, like they looked at me like they were almost ashamed. That was the look that they gave me. It wasn't like, ah, ah, and running up. It was like clammed up like they had been told things. But then a few minutes into it, they all warmed up. But it just left me with a very uneasy feeling. Anthony had been mailing his kids letters. But as he discovered when he saw his wife, they hadn't been getting them. Now he began to fear the worst. I still feel this is that they would move my family. I'm in great fear that they will move my family and I'll never see them again. Every time he reached out for another visit, he was blocked. By April 2023, he reached breaking point. I was coming from the south and heading up towards Overbrook. And I was having to pass right through on the highway there. So I was literally going to be right there. And so I, I texted them asking if I could come by and see my family. And I, I was very humble about it. I said, I'm sorry, I don't want to bother y'all. Uh, I, I just want to be able to see my family. Can I come by and visit for a few minutes and just say hello to my family? There was no response. So he decided to drive straight to the community, 20 minutes away. When I got there, I pulled off into a Casey's convenience store that was right there in town. And I texted him again and said, hey, I'm in Overbrook right now. Would it be fine if I come by and see my family? I immediately got a, right now is not a good time. He fired a text back. When would be a good time? No response. So he waited. He pulled out of the Casey's driveway and continued toward the homestead. He was getting more nervous. He texted again. Hey, I'm getting a really weird feeling. Is my family even there anymore? Still no response. Anthony replied. Look, I want to know right now if my family is there. And, and that's when I got, no, they're not here anymore. Where were they? Where had his children been taken? And would he see them again? Every time I think about this, it just makes me start. It's just a 
was a very difficult day when that happened. I just lost it. I was bawling. I mean, uncontrollably weeping. Um, could not stop. And I was having horrible thoughts go through my head. Thoughts of just, you know, I don't even want to say. Uh, just horrible thoughts. <laughs> In the midst of it, I, I thought, man, I, I this isn't the way I want to go. I, I don't want to. I, I need to reach out to somebody, and so I called Nicole, and I couldn't even couldn't even say what was going on for a while. It's just bald and bald. Nicole is Nicole Dorfman, a reporter for the CU Independent, the University of Colorado's paper. She has been working with Anthony since he left the community in 2022, and is aware how worried he is about his family. So when he called her sobbing one night in April 23, she knew what it meant. That night was definitely a tough one. It was, you know, really traumatic for Tony, and I can understand that. Together, they called the local sheriff in Kansas. And uh, put in a request to go check on the welfare of my family and to find out where they were. So the sheriff showed up. And uh, before they showed up, they called me personally and said, hey, listen, we need to know if we need to go in with assault rifles, if we need backup, we need to know what we're facing here. And I said, look, they are an unarmed group. I feel like that they are dangerous, but not in that. When the cops visited the community, however, they were told that Anthony's family had been moved across the border to Colorado. Nicole and Anthony then put a call in to the Boulder County Sheriff's Office asking them to do a welfare check on the six kids. A couple of hours later, they called the cops again to see what had happened. This is a recording of that phone call, supplied by Nicole. We've edited it slightly for clarity. Hi, this is Nicole Dorfman. I'm here with Tony. Hi, this one. So it seems like uh, we reported uh, an instance a potential human trafficking about a couple hours ago, and it seems like you didn't go to the community at all. Are you intending on going to the community tonight? Right. Anthony didn't say anything about the people being in danger. They said that, as you said, that they were transferred from Kansas to Boulder. So mm-hmm. I, need to get, I need to get more information to make sure that Anthony doesn't have any protection. Yes, the thing is, uh, or anything the like thing that. is they, they've been hurt many times before, um, with no good medical care. So, yeah, I I feel like that their lives are in danger. I don't feel like that they're trying to do it intentionally, but they are such idiots that they do stuff that put our children in danger. Okay, can you just yeah, write yeah. a little more detail what that actually looks well, like? Anthony, upset, listed the incidents. And so there's more information that's given to the Kansas jurisdiction and they can investigate, because I, I obviously can't fly out to Kansas to investigate an iodine poisoning situation. Uh, I understand. And I can tell Kansas PD to do that as well, on behalf of you, just like the, okay. Ms. McCole, no offense, but Ms. McCole can't have me do a welfare check on your behalf or in a different state, if that makes sense. Because there's too many, too many, there's, uh, we start playing telephone at that point because she's telling me yeah. that I'm not doing anything for a possible se- uh, human trafficking, but that's not what it's exactly it sounds like. It sounds like you're more concerned that they took your family uh, from Canada. Well, from- well, well, 
it becomes that when they start hiding families and stuff like that. It does. Yeah. You know, it does become that. And also we talked to the Osage County Sheriff's Office, which I mean, he even said that it, that we should contact the FBI. So if he has reasonable case to suspect that it is human trafficking, then I don't understand why you can't communicate to another jurisdiction and talk to them. The detective told Anthony he should go to the Kansas police station he first called and apply for something called an intent to locate on his wife. I mean, I understand that you're concerned because there's like negligence going on with medical stuff, but unfortunately I can't boot in her door and go wrangle up your family and put them on a plane to Kansas. That's not how this works. Uh, That would be a very egregious violation of the Fourth Amendment to boot in someone's door for what is essentially you telling me that there's uh, medical neglect. Now, what I said I was like I was going to do once I got the information, which I do now have, is I can go knock on the door. I can't promise that they're going to come to the door. Um, I can't promise that they're going to allow me to talk to Amy. I can't tell you. I can't promise that they're going to tell me that Amy's even there or the kids are there. That doesn't happen until there's a court order or there's a warrant or a search warrant or something like that. And okay, so so how can I do that when they're in a different state? I was not made privy with. I mean. I was, I was just going to say, the Osage County Sheriff's Office said that they can't do anything at this point because the, the family has been transferred, transferred to your jurisdiction. At this point, it is your responsibility to take care of the case, is what they told us. Yeah, that, that is un, that's unfortunately not correct. I, this based on information, I mean, are you, as a reporter, expecting me to go put in this person's door? I'm not, I'm not expecting you to put in anybody's door. I'm expecting you to go and investigate something. I, I don't think that if you don't have a search warrant that you can lawfully go in there. That's not what I'm saying at all, but you haven't even gone to the location. You waited on information that you didn't have. You didn't contact Tony or ask him for the birth dates. You just waited for him to call you. I definitely did text him uh, to ask him for that. You texted him, not called him. Yes, I have other calls that I have to handle too. Understandable. So I texted him and he had, a, he had an answer back and I texted twice and there was no, there was no response. Mm-hmm. So I, mean, I didn't know you texted, which, which is okay. It happens. So yeah. now that I have that information, I was able to do a little more research to make sure, like I said, this person doesn't have any warrants. There's no protection orders in place or anything like that. Then yes, we're going to go over there and like I said, knock on the door and try to talk to them. But because right now, as of right now, based on the information that you're telling me, it's a welfare check. I can't force them to do anything. And that's understandable. Uh, yes. I mean, that's understandable. No. We know that you're, you're limited in your resources, that you can't you can't force in the door. That's not what we're asking. What we're asking is for a welfare check. That's it. Which is which is what my plan is as soon as we get off the phone. I get another deputy down here to go with me. Okay. But the thing is, even when the officers go knocking on the community's door in cases like this, they can't do much without evidence that children are in danger. It's very difficult because they can come in and say, hey, is everything okay? And Tony's wife will probably be like, yes, because she has, what, at least 30 people watching. And it's very, very difficult to prosecute then, you know, in any situation, even if it was human trafficking, which is not considered to be in the U.S., but if it was, they still, whoever is investigating would have to say, okay, well, here's my number. Let me know if you need anything. And that's all we can do. You're probably wondering why Anthony doesn't just divorce his estranged wife and petition the courts for custody of his kids. 
that would give him some legal recourse. Well, for one thing, he doesn't have the resources. He has little work, which means hardly any money and no fixed address. Ten years inside the tribe without an income and work history has taken its toll. That and his lack of knowledge of the legal system has rendered him virtually powerless. And there's also the complicating factor that he still loves his wife. He doesn't blame her for what's happening. He just wants to be a family again. I have been so all over the place and, you know, a mess. There's days that I don't even know how I get through it, you know. There are days where I wake up bawling and end my day by bawling. So all all I can say on days like that is I've gotten through. You know, I'm still alive. As a journalist, Nicole has helped reconnect 10 families whose children or loved ones were hidden from them inside the community. It was a very difficult process to even find them and get into contact with them. I had to go to the community myself and, uh, you know, kind of stake out there with a camera and get pictures and all sorts of identification for the the families where the children were missing. So, uh, but it, it was... It was definitely really um, just a mixed bag because I, I was very happy to see them get reconnected, but also there's, there's only so much you can do in this in that situation as a journalist. And a lot of the times, or a lot of the time, it's it's not as easy as that. It's a lot more difficult to convince the children to leave, especially when they've been born in. Nicole has now spoken with more than 200 former 12 Tribes members and believes questions need to be asked by American authorities. Even back a couple of years ago, after we had evidence of all of this, you know, we had taken pictures, we had proof, and we had reached out to the FBI, um, who is knowledgeable of everything that was going on. And essentially what they told us is that due to freedom of religion in the U.S., and especially after what occurred in Island Pond during the raid of 1984, they don't really want to make a mistake like that again. All of this, you know, shady stuff is going on and it's not being investigated. Throughout all of this, she's been stonewalled by the 12 tribes, much like we have been when we've sought comment on numerous issues. Yeah, pretty much any time I do uh, a report on them, because I have been reporting on them for the past three years, um, I do send out a request. The only reply I've received is, we've received your message. They don't deny anything. They don't want to talk to reporters. And they know me because I went undercover three years ago into the Boulder community. So they're very, um, they're not big fans of me. We don't know the 12 tribes plan for Anthony's family. They declined to respond to our inquiries. I'm mourning over the, you know, I don't know how else to say it, but I am absolutely mourning. It, it, it's like it never ends at all. It never ends. You know, it's like being in a bad dream I can't wake up from. We know that the group has a long, well-documented history 
of hiding children and estranged spouses in the middle of custody disputes and playing cat and mouse with police. This is Courtney, a former member of 30 Years, who we met in earlier episodes. You know, in Allen Pond, we had 14 houses, and some of them were right, right next to each other or across the street from each other. It was a little, little town, you know, just, you know, I think it was less than 5,000 people in the town. It's one of those one street light, you know, towns. And we had the store in the down, you know, in, in the central part downtown Main Street. And so a lot of times when they were looking for someone, they would first go to the block, go into the restaurant and ask which house, because they don't know which house they are. And it would be like playing um, musical chairs. You know, they'd go out the back door while we're talking to them on the front door and they would go out and around, you know, you know, through the woods or na- that backyard neighbors and to another house. And say, oh, I think we saw them over there. And they would lead them from one house to another. And they were always just, oh, you just missed them. Several of these cases have been in the press and some have even been the subject of FBI investigations. Often, children and adults have been shifted secretly between states and even countries, like Jessica. You've already met Jessica from episode six. She's Paolo's wife and was known in the community as a Muna. When she was five, she, her mother and stepfather joined the community. Her dad was never a member, but he'd always had a friendly arrangement with his ex that he could visit the little girl whenever he wanted. Then when Jessica was eight, the community in Island Pond began attracting a lot of negative attention. This was September, October of 84, and the raid had happened in June that year. So the community was like on national television multiple times. My grandmother saw it. She's like super worried about me being there. So he tried to serve Jessica's mother with custody papers, but every time he called into the community, He was told that his ex-wife and Jessica weren't there. He finally got a court order for Jessica to come and stay with him in Florida, but by that time, she was gone. They had us leave the state in like a bus that was transformed into like a mobile home when my sister was five days old, so that um, he couldn't take me. It was really clear she wasn't allowed to leave the state, and she did. For nine months, they drove through the US and Canada, stopping in various communities. But it was dangerous to contact the leaders, as the group was under heavy scrutiny from the FBI and even Interpol. My stepdad was the only one that could call the community and he could only talk to one person. He was the only one that knew where we were and he had to use a different name. We lived in no, at the farm in Nova Scotia for like six months, but then, um, Interpol went to look for me there. They had been this whole time looking for me everywhere in the U.S. In Nova Scotia, there was a farm, and it was probably two or three hours away from the other community. The other community was on the water, and it was they had a huge restaurant there. So the police went to the restaurant and searched everything because the it was like a four-floor building, and the restaurant was on the first floor, and people lived above it. So they went into every room and searched everything. 
And they called the farm and told us that the police were there looking for me. And my stepdad put a blanket on the floor and said, anything you want, put on the blanket. And we left the farm in five minutes because they didn't know if the police were already on their way there too. So we went to a hotel for a night and then we flew to Boston, but we weren't allowed to go to the community there. We stayed in a hotel there for a few days, got visas to Brazil. They needed a place to send me to get me away from my father and the situation here in the US. By now, it was 1988, and Jessica's mother was wanted in the US for kidnapping her daughter and breaching custody orders. And we flew out like six days later. I didn't even know what language they spoke there. (laughs) My mom and my stepdad went to Brazil along with another couple to start a community there. And during all this time, I couldn't like write letters or talk to any of my friends or like I could have no communication during any of this time. And then we went to Brazil and for another two years, I didn't talk to anyone. And I didn't see my dad for 12 years. While in Brazil, she met and married Paulo, known as Yadutan a bright young guy who was rising up the ranks in the Brazilian community. In 2000, the community moved Jessica and Paolo to the US. With Paolo's encouragement, Jessica reached out to her father. So, looked him up, called him, and we started visiting him. I was 20. I hadn't seen him since I was eight really didn't know him, you know, like it's not only had I not seen him very much, but it was like, so ingrained that, you know, growing up with him would have been like being in the world and just all these, you know, like, and just like scared of hearing police sirens or anything the whole time. Like I I didn't know when I was just going to be taken, you know? Jessica remembers it as a strange and painful time with grief and joy in equal measure. Four years later, police finally caught up with Jessica's mother. Police arrested Lynn DeLozier, 48, at the Basin Farm in Bellows Falls, home of 12 tribes, a religious community for custodial interference. It goes on. Investigators used an active arrest warrant which dated back to February 11, 1988. The court affidavit alleged that the married couple had consistently and persistently conspired to not comply to the Superior Court's parental rights orders, despite repeated warnings. The affidavit also said the couple had renamed the girl, allegedly creating a further separation between her and her father. Craig DeLozier said he and his wife were young at the time and thought everything was over since the girl had reconciled with her father. Lynn DeLozier was 32 in 1988, according to court documents. It's not like we're living like fugitives or something, he said. We're just surprised something like this is being brought up. Someone told them where she was. She was living back in southern Vermont. Like, they could have put her in any community. She was living back in southern Vermont. She was arrested. She was taken to jail for a night, and she and they bailed her out. It's a lot of money. They bailed her out, and she had um, she had to stay, had to sign in the police station for like a year during the whole case. But the judge was like, 
I, I took my kids and pictures of them with my dad and all that. Like I had been married for like six or seven years at the time. I had two kids. I was pregnant with my third, like it just kind of too late. You know, the judge was like, I think that whatever punishment I give her isn't going to stop the next mom that just wants to run off with their kid. And the point of, of this is to reconnect the daughter with her father, which obviously has already happened. So that was that. The group's history is littered with similar stories, but one case would eclipse all others in the eyes of the public and create a fully-fledged media storm. It's the 1990s, and Jerry Springer, a veritable Godzilla of American daytime television, rules the airwaves with his tabloid talk show, a circus of middle American moral panics, including adultery, race wars, and on-air jello wrestling. And so it was that in 1994, Springer, the ringmaster, managed the impossible, getting senior 12 tribes members to appear on his show. I hope that the boys end up staying with their father. But it's not Helen, your decision. It's not your judgment. Well, it's Helen, not your judgment to make. You're not the judge. I know. You asked me. The, I asked you, will you help her? Not you, No, I won't help her. I was invited to do the Jerry Springer show. And uh, Eddie Weissman was on the show. Uh, Jeannie Swanko, his wife, who's an attorney. This is cult deprogrammer Rick Allen Ross talking about a case he worked on with a woman named Laurie Johnson, whose two boys were abducted in 1989 by her estranged husband and 12 Tribes member, Steve Wooten. This mom's six and 10-year-old sons were kidnapped four and a half years ago, not by a stranger, but by her ex-husband, whom she claims is part of a religious cult, a cult that is keeping her children from her. Welcome back. Joining us now is Jean Swanko. She is a member and attorney for the Community of Believers. Eddie Wiseman is her husband and one of the leaders of this community. And sitting next to them is Rick Ross. He's a nationally recognized cult expert. Okay, first let me start with Eddie and Jean. You have heard backstage, these are pretty serious allegations that are being made. How do you respond to them? Well, it's a, it's a lot to respond to in a little bit of time, but I guess, really, people, people make choices in their life. And then they are accountable for the choices that they make. Swantko is on stage, sitting next to her husband, Eddie, who is in light blue long-sleeve shirt and slacks, with long hair in a neat ponytail and beard. Jeannie is wearing a white puffy-sleeve blouse and navy pinafore dress, with her hair tightly pulled back in a low pony. What I see is the problem is she's changed her mind, but instead of saying that she's changed her mind and she no longer believes what she believes then, she tries to come against us as the community and her husband and say that what former we... Former husband, excuse me. And her former husband, and what we believe is wrong. Yeah, right now, I understand that, but right now it seems from the outside she simply wants to see her kids, and it's hard for those of us on the outside to believe that you couldn't be a little more help than you're being in finding out where he is. I guess maybe she should have thought about what the harm that might come to her children would be before she totally abandoned them, left them for several months of activity, gave herself to total promiscuity 
and knowingly had oral sex with a man a who second. had AIDS. Wait, wait. Wow! What she what, had AIDS. I had no choice to leave the community. They expelled me from the community when I begged, crawling half-naked, to stay with my children. I did not abandon my children. Indeed, when Laurie Johnson left the community, she had taken their children with her. But one day, after a scheduled visit with their father, they never came home. This is Eddie Wiseman, Gene Spriggs' second-in-command. The group is not Stephen? controlling Stephen are Wooten. You, are you paying Stephen? We I don't know where Stephen Wooten is. Today, and you can't find him. You don't know. I can't find him. Tomorrow I do not know, know where he but is. Today you don't. We're, we're, we're not law enforcement, Jerry. Yes. We're the church. We're not law enforcement. They were lying. We interviewed Rick Allen Ross 28 years after he appeared on the show. Later, I bumped into them at the hotel. And I said to them, look, if you want people to think you're not a bad cult, why don't you just provide the children to Lori, bring them out, it's what you have to do legally. And I even quoted the Bible to them. I said, doesn't the New Testament teach that you must obey civil authority? I mean, that's what Jesus taught. He said, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And you're not doing that. You're, you're withholding the children illegally. And they kept saying, we don't know where they are. We don't know where they are. And I said, that's rubbish. You absolutely know where they are. Why are you lying about it? So the good thing that came out of that Jerry Springer show was that the boys, uh, their photos were out there. People were looking for them. By 1994, the tribes had learnt from past mistakes. They didn't keep the Wootens in communities themselves. Instead, they kept them in private houses dotted around the country. Remember how earlier in the series, we mentioned how the tribes owned an extensive real estate portfolio, including homes that apparently sat empty most of the time. Over the years, Many of them had been gifted to the group by prospective members. But often, someone from the group would move in to help renovate or just house-sit. This is apparently how Steve Wooten lived undetected for almost a decade. While in hiding, Steve met and married another woman. Courtney remembers staying with him in a member's home. And so that's where I've visited with Julie and uh, Steve. Julie had black hair at that time. She was keeping her hair dyed because it was normally uh, reddish brown, more bur- mm. brownish red. Uh, you know, it was just, it wasn't like flaming red, but it was a brownish red. And Steve Wooten didn't have his hair tied back and he did, you know, he didn't have, you know, he was clean shaven. And, uh, and the boys looked like regular people. They didn't look from the community. The two boys changed their names, and Steve used fake identities, or borrowed them from other tribes members. One day, Courtney saw a different name on Steve's car registration papers. I just said, hey, who is Steve Wilson? And he laughed. He goes, oh, that was my name for a while. I, you know, he had a driver's license. He showed me. He had a driver's license. He had all these IDs. And there was another member who actually his name was Steve Wilson, and so he used this other man's ID. After the Jerry Springer show in 1994, 
Posters of the boys appeared in shop windows and on lamp posts. There were also missing persons ads on TV. And by April 1997, after eight years on the run, the game was finally up. The search for the Wooten boys ended with a raid on a property in Florida. This is a snippet from a piece in the Buffalo News newspaper a month after the boys were returned. After eight years on the run with cult, boys readjust to life with mother. Wooten defended his flight with the boys. In my heart, I was resolved that whatever I went through was for the sake of the boys, he said. Gene Swatko, a lawyer and community member, said Wooten had no choice but to run with the boys. The courts would not treat him fairly, she said. He knew in his conscience that he could not turn them over to her. In the months since, with the help from a hired cult deprogrammer, the boys have reclaimed Mrs. Johnson as their mother, and the word mom now comes naturally from their lips. Mrs. Johnson, who declined to have her sons interviewed, said the boys look forward to living a normal life. And it was a very difficult deprogramming because those boys had been raised in 12 tribes and they didn't know anything but living in 12 tribes. By the time they were reunited with their mother, the boys were 12 and 17 years old. And they confided in me that the group had moved them around, that they had seen Gene Spriggs, uh, a.k.a. the prophet Yonake, the leader and founder of the group. They had seen him. He knew where they were. He was managing their where they were being moved to. It was like a shell game. They were being moved from place to place. And what I realized is that even in the situation with these two children, he was involved personally, hands-on. Charges against Steve were dropped by Vermont court in 1998, but reinstated by the Supreme Court in 2000. He ended up spending close to a year in custody. Upon his release, the community in Cambridge, New York, held a summer banquet welcoming him with open arms. It's difficult to say how many families have been hidden over the years, But it's also important to acknowledge that in some cases, the 12 tribes were genuinely afraid for the safety of their members and children and had legitimate reasons for hiding people, for example, from abusive partners. Cult deprogrammers, starting with Ted Patrick in the 1970s, have also made misguided and sometimes illegal efforts to remove members from the group against their will. In 2015, three people were arrested for allegedly kidnapping a man from the 12 tribes community in Southern California. The trio, including a cult deprogrammer, were caught by police after reportedly abducting the 23-year-old who had been living with the 12 tribes since he was a teenager. His family claimed that he'd been brainwashed. The three alleged kidnappers were never charged. The young man, meanwhile, returned to live with the 12 tribes. (laughs) 
You've been listening to Inside the Tribe. I'm Tim Elliott. If you'd like to get in touch, please email us on insidethetribepod at gmail.com. My co-writer and producer is Camille Bianchi. Editing by Mark Wright of Term 6. This is a DM podcast production. We've also used some third-party TV and print material through the series, with details on those in the show notes. This is an evolving story, and we'll be back soon. If you or anyone you know is affected by any of the subject matter raised in this episode, you can contact Lifeline for crisis support on 131114 if you're in Australia or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline on 10273-TALK if you're in the US. Contact information for other services, including support to leave a high-control group, 